0: very interesting to look around at teenagers today who've been denied the purpose of survival and the purpose of getting and the purpose of pleasure. So many people who grew up during the depression were bound to determine that their kids were going to have everything they didn't have and consequently took away from them the purpose of surviving, took away from them anything that they could want to get. They gave them every pleasure possible and so they took away all purpose in life. That's why a kid that has everything that is imaginable, probably is terribly depressed. I'll never forget several years ago when I was in Singapore, we were climbing one of the new housing developments there. They're 20 floors high. By the way, Singapore is probably the cleanest city in the world. It's just gorgeous. And they've knocked down all the slums and put up these new housing developments. And as we went up the stairs, I noticed that every third floor, there was a grate in the stairwell. So I asked Pat Lowe why why that was. And Pat says, well... We have such tremendous trouble with suicide. He said, You know, people in the slums in Singapore live for the day when they move out of those slums and get this nice new apartment. So within two months after they get in here, they have no more purpose or meaning in life. You see, they just existed with that purpose of getting this new apartment, and once they get it, they can't hack it. They don't know what to live for. Their purpose is gone, and so they jump down the stairwells. And the government has actually put these grates in to prevent people from committing suicide that way. Well, there's a whole big story that we can talk about that, but that's not our purpose. The second area is if we get our value from God, then our purpose in life is to give and to build and to do things for all eternity. Now, look at Roman numeral two, which is really the first main point of what I want to speak about tonight. And I've reworded that, and I think maybe you should change that in your notes, to what do I have to offer? As you look out at life from this point on, you say, "Well, what, what, what really do I have to give? What do I have to offer to the world?" Somebody comes and asks you to work in church, and you think it's a mark of sanctification. You say, "Well, I can't teach, you know, I don't have any talent, all that sort of stuff." It's not a mark of sanctification. You just never discovered who you are. You don't have any idea of what you have to offer. This year, when we kicked off our educational program at our church, I suggested that. Everybody had something fantastic to offer. It's a three-letter word called God. That's who's in you, and that's what you have to offer. Not yourself. That's the problem. That's where you get all the burnout, by the way, in church work. They're people who are offering themselves. Oh boy, they're going to do a great thing, you know. They're going to go out and they're really going to mop up the program. They're going to go in the inner city and work. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. Well, after a couple of years, they're so burned out by the church that they probably won't ever show up again. You know, the problem is they've been offering themselves. If that's all you got to offer to the world. Why don't you just forget about it? What we have to offer as Christians is God, God living in us. We begin our study of that by looking at two passages of Scripture that are very intriguing. The first is the 47th chapter of Ezekiel. Not something that you've read every night before you went to bed, and so I better refresh your memory of it. It's the story of the temple that had a leak. Remember that vision? Ezekiel was walking around the temple, and he noticed that the corner of it was leaking. Pain vision, little tiny trickle of water running out of the corner of it. The so fellow said, come on, let me take you by the hand I'll show you what's happening with that trickle of water. Well, Ezekiel said, we walked uh, hand in hand and we went out about a thousand cubits and there I found that that trickle of water had become ankle deep. We went a thousand cubits more and I found that it was was knee deep. We went a thousand cubits more and it was waist deep. Man, I went a thousand cubits more and I couldn't swim across it. Then he took me down to the Dead Sea and he said, I saw that water, that little tiny trickle of water that leak in the temple Coming down and it went into that dead sea. You know what happened when it hit the Dead Sea? The Dead Sea became fresh. He said it was all full of fish. There were fishermen all around. He said, so Then I went back walking along that river again, and I saw all kinds of trees planted along that river, bearing fruit. You know what that vision is, don't you? The vision of you, my friend, and of me. For we have become the temple of God. And the picture of that water flowing out of that temple in that cascading stream is a picture of your and my purpose in life. Take it over to the New Testament, John 7, verse 38. That beautiful passage where Jesus says, Whoever believes in me from within him shall come torrents of living water. Tie that up with the other passage, John 8. The last day of the great Feast of the Tabernacles. I don't know whether you remember the story or not, but that Feast of the Tabernacles was a fantastic time among the Jews. And they were all there in Jerusalem having, having just a great celebration. And the final day of the Feast, they all congregated at the temple because there was a special ceremony. You see, the priests would come out of that temple with their white robes and walk down the hillside to the pool of Siloam and they'd take those big golden pitchers and they'd fill them up with water. And then they'd walk back up those steps again with all the crowd chanting and they'd get back into the center of that temple and then in a symbol they'd pour that water from those golden pitchers on the floor of the temple as a symbol of the fact that God was living in there. That water was the source of life and it was flowing out. And there was a rustle in the crowd that particular day and a man stood forward, uh, walked forward and all of a sudden he shouted out, He said, I am the water of life. Wow, look, utter blasphemy, this man, uttered to say that he was the water of life. That's what Jesus claimed. Then he said, whoever believes in me, from within him shall come forest of living water. Well, I don't know whether you ever really considered what you had to offer the world. What is this symbolism of water? You go on and take a look now on page 23. That water that is within you is the Holy Spirit. Who is that Holy Spirit? Let me suggest five things about him. First of all, he's the creator of life. We meet him first in the pages of Genesis where it says that God took the dust of the earth and for man and breathed into him the breath of life. That's the Spirit of God. Man became a living soul. We come across him again in John. Jesus said, unless you're born of the Spirit, you can't really live. Over and over throughout all of the Bible, the Spirit is that creator of life. And now, my friend, I want you to think of yourself as a person who contains within you the giver of life. That's the proper image That's the proper understanding. As you go from this place tonight, you go out into that world as a being that is filled with the creator of life and the thing I'm praying that he'll drive home to you is that the only way he works is through you and me. We are his wires. We are his conduit. The Spirit of God does not short-circuit his own people. We are called His temples for a very, very important reason because it was through His temple that God worked and brought life to Israel in the Old Testament. It's through His temple in the New Testament that God lives and brings life to the world. And you and I are His temple. That veil was ripped in two when Christ died on Calvary. God moved out of that Holy of Holies and He moved into our hearts. And the Creator of life is within us. What do you have to offer the world? You say, well, I don't have many talents and I don't have many gifts and I'm kind of fat and homely. Just what the devil wants you to say. He doesn't want you to know who you are. He doesn't want you to realize that within you dwells the creator of life. and The only way he works is if you open the valve and you let him flow out. Not just the creator of life, that spirit of God is the contender with men. Genesis 6 says that my spirit will not strive with men for all time. And then Christ picks up that contending idea in Matthew 5 when he says you are the salt of the earth. The spirit of God is the retarder of sin. And there's only one way that spirit retards sin. He retards it through his people. He doesn't come down and zap sin like an electric bolt from heaven. He comes and fills. People with his presence. As they lift their hands against abortion and pornography and crime, murder, violence. As they are concerned, he flows out of their fingers and their mouths and he does his contending work, controlling and retarding the work of the devil. All you have to do is go to India with me to see how two and a half percent of 700 million people been used as the contender of God to change and make drastic, drastic impact upon a culture far beyond their tiny, tiny percentage. Where the Christians today in the United States, where those evangelicals that are filled with the Spirit of God and aren't going to sit back, but they're going to contend, and in their contending with sin, let that Spirit of God flow out of them. He's the convictor of sin. You know, don't you, that the only way in which a person really comes to understand who he is is when the Spirit can use your mouth and can use your mind and flows out through you. What do you have to offer to the world, friend? You've got the Creator of life the retarder of sin, the convictor of men living within you, aching and longing that He may flow out of you to do His abundant work. When you speak, don't ever think it's the power of your words. Just as now when I speak, I must never begin to think that my words Can in my human strength do one thing other than serve as electric wires from me to you through which that Spirit of God flows? And He's the one who does exceeding abundantly above anything I can ask or imagine. He's the one that convicts tonight. He's the one that maybe touched your heart already and gave you that new way of looking at yourself and showed you what sin you've been living in. You thought that your independence can get your value yourself He's the comforter. Half a year ago now, my wife and I received word one Saturday afternoon from a very close friend. The doctor informed her that she had from two weeks to a few years to live. She was planning to get married in a month. Will we please come and see him? The family was, of course, grief-stricken. And as Atz and I went over there, we prayed together that our words would be electric wires for the Spirit of God. That whatever we would say in human speech would be used miraculously by that comforter flowing across to touch those lives, those people. Sometimes you can see the Spirit work, sometimes you can't. That particular night we could. What a thrill to see the comfort of God Himself flow into grief stricken people, the peace that all passes all understanding became there. What a purpose in life! What a fantastic life to live that I've got the spirit of God to give. He's the counselor, the director, the guide that's what I have to offer to the world today, and I just want to point out one more thing or one, one more section of thought about that. i said over and over that the Holy Spirit flows only through Christians and I want to remind you of that fact. Paul says in Romans that they can't hear unless there's a preacher. I don't believe for one single moment that God short-circuits his temple. Some time ago I was introduced at a Lutheran gathering with a very unique story, and I've told it a number of times. Some of you have heard it, I suppose. But it just illustrates this point so beautifully. The story is a hypothetical story. It isn't true. But when Jesus ascended into heaven, he was met at heaven's gates by Gabriel. My, 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 the music of heaven at that point was infinitely greater than anything I ever heard on Bethlehem's hills. I'll tell you, those angels were just singing and singing, and in the midst of all the noise and the tumult, Gabriel welcomed our Lord back to heaven's gate, and then he said, on behalf of all the angels, Savior, what part do you have for us in this grand plan of bringing your salvation to all these men? The Lord said so quietly, none, Gabriel. And a startled hush fell over all of heaven, and Gabriel said, what? What What did you say? And the Lord said, I have no other plan other than the simple service that all the angels have already given. Well, 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 Master, Master, don't we have some role in bringing the news of this salvation to all of the people on earth? We watched. You know with what joy the heavens' courts have rung as sinners have come home. Ah, yes, said Jesus, but you'll have no part. Well, what, well, what provision have you made, said Gabriel? Just tell us what provision have you made. Jesus said, look down there through those clouds, Gabriel. See those 11 fellows stand on the hill, their mouths open, wondering where I went? That's my provision. And <laughs> Gabriel, look. <laughs> Haven't you made any other provision? The Lord said, no, Gabriel. I have made no other provision. Oh, how the devil wants you to pray. How he watches you down in the dumps in that perpetual pity party. He just wants you to feel so bad you don't have anything to offer to the world. Garbage! You've got the Spirit of God within you, the creator of life, the Retarder of sin. You've got the convictor of men, the comforter and the counselor. And that's what you have to offer. And that's the only way the Spirit of God flows. God has made no other provision than to have you Act on his behalf and let him flow through you. I believe, dear child of God, that that spirit is in every single Christian. You can't be born again without that spirit of God. There are people who believe that you're baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe you're baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit too. I believe that that may be something different. What I believe that to be is, is that finally... God's grace has gotten through to you and you understand what you've been all the time. Your whole image is changed. And instead of being all filled with looks and money and all that sort of stuff, you look at yourself and say, Hey man, you know who I am? I'm the temple of the Spirit of God, the reservoir of all that God is. And That's my identity. That's my value. That's my purpose in life. And that Spirit flows out of me in torrents. So I'm going to show you at the conclusion in a few moments. Not in trickles, but in torrents. Well, that brings us to the second basic point tonight, this final thing. What do you have to offer to the world? It's the Holy Spirit. How do you give him? How do you give the Holy Spirit? And I suggest that there's a formula. And that formula is called attitude plus actions equals abundance. You give the Holy Spirit, first of all, if you've got the proper attitude. And that attitude is not a self dependent attitude. You go through life trusting Jesus Christ for your everlasting salvation, but thinking right now that you're going to do it yourself and you've got to live for Jesus. My friend. You grieve the Holy Spirit and you seal him up. And this is the great, great problem of the church today. We believe that justification is a work of grace. We believe that sanctification is man's gratitude in response for it. Friend, justification and sanctification are both works of grace and they're gifts. The theme song of so many of us is, I'll do it myself. I don't want the Lord to help me. What a tragedy when we get sick and I can't depend upon myself anymore. When all my money is gone, I don't have anything left. What a tragedy that I finally have to depend on him who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and I'm all bent out of shape. That attitude toward life, that self-dependent, independent attitude hampers the flow of the Spirit. What you need is the Christ-dependent attitude. It says that I am the temple of God Die fellowship with him. You have to have those love experiences, feeling love by Christ, reaching out and touching others and have them touch you, and go on and on and on in all that glorious love relationship. You have to function in him and realize that your whole being is tied up in that lifeline of trust to Almighty God. Well, I might just say that attitude isn't enough. You need more than attitude professor here at this college, one of my colleagues in seminary, told me one time about a a girl that wrote an examination for him. He said, you know, that was the most incoherent examination that I ever saw in my life. He said, there wasn't a thing in it made any sense. He said, I never got such a bunch of mixed up nonsense in all my life. So he said, I called her in and I said, how do you explain this? What's the deal? And uh, so she she said, well, I uh, I just trusted the Holy Spirit that he would guide me. He looked for a moment. Well, he says, that gives me kind of a problem. He says, i got to flunk somebody I don't know who. But somebody didn't pass this test. There's a real danger in saying, well, I'm just filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore I can sit back and not do anything at all. And that's not what the Scripture teaches at all. The scripture teaches that attitude plus action equal abundance. Now I want to take you to the story of that little boy in John six. That beautiful story of that little fellow that brought his lunch to Jesus. You remember him, don't you? He had quite an attitude. It was in contrast to the attitude of Philip. Jesus said to Philip, Philip, where are we going to get food to feed all these five thousand people? And Philip got (laughs) Philip, you know what Philip looked like? He looked like a church council. He just got all bent out of shape and he finally said, well, Lord, it just can't be done. My, I wonder how many times the councils of our church echo Philip's words. (laughs) Lord, it just can't be done, you know. We've reached the end of human resources and we can't do this and we can't do that we can't do the next thing. After all, you know, it's recession time and you can just get so much money and there isn't any more. As if somehow the people of the church are the source of money and not the Father in heaven. There was an attitude on Philip's part that said, uh, I gotta do it for you. And he went, Louie, because he just couldn't put it all together. Well, anyway, somewhere in the crowd they found this little fellow, and they took him by the hand, and he had quite an attitude. He trusted Jesus. His mom had had some foresight to pack a lunch for him. The only person out of all those people that had any food, I can't imagine. But anyway, here he came with his five sandwiches and his two fish. Now, what did he do? Well, he had some action. He uh, he brought his little brown paper bag up to Jesus, and he reached into it, and he counted out four sandwiches, didn't he? He gave that to Jesus. And then he went through those two fish, and he gave one fish to Jesus. And he said, well, let's see what, what you'll do with it. But I don't fully trust you, and man, I had enough sense to bring enough food along for myself. I'm not going to go completely hungry. I'm going to keep some. <laughs> You know, he just gave the whole lunch to Jesus. Now, did the humor of this story ever strike you? This has to be one of the most ludicrous stories in the whole of Scripture. Here comes this little kid. You know, the Lord's got all these fancy disciples around him, beautiful counsel, with all their knowledge. Here comes a kid with a brown paper bag and his lunch. Brings it up to Jesus. Just hear Jesus feed five thousand people with my lunch, will you? I think about that every time I go to India. And I walk the streets of Bombay, and I just start laughing to myself. You think that story funny? You ought to go to you ought to go to India once, <laughs> and, and look at seven hundred million people without Christ, and then look at one man and a team of men and and a few followers and a few helpers. And you say, Lord? <laughs> This has got them all beat. This has got to be the funniest, most ludicrous thing in all the world. But Lord, we're going to follow the image of that little boy. And we're going to give you our whole lunch. Everything, lock, stock, and barrel. Lord, help me to sacrifice it and lay it all down before you. Well, what happened? You know what happened. God took those five sandwiches and those two fish, and out of it he fed everybody there and there were 12 baskets full left over. That's the only way Jesus worked. On and on and on, over and over and over it goes in ever-increasing ways of abundance. I just want to conclude with a couple of stories about it all. Find those on the last page. I was at the Festival on Evangelism this summer, and boy, that was really terrific in Kansas City. There are a lot of things that impressed me there, but I think the thing that impressed me the most was a little five-minute drama that was performed for us on the closing evening. It's just really changed my life and my perspective. God spoke to me so much through it. It had about six scenes, and it all went through in about five minutes. It went something like this. The first two players came out on the stage, and they acted out the role of a man coming home from the festival on evangelism, and he got into his airport in his local city, and he met a buddy there that wasn't a Christian, so they had a cup of coffee together in the restaurant. Well, this guy's all charged up, you see, about witnessing. Boy, he really lights into this guy because this guy hasn't gone to church, and he doesn't talk about church. He talks about the blood of Jesus Christ, and he makes an absolute mess of it. He gets himself so boggled up that halfway through he hangs it up and he says to the guy in total embarrassment, well he says I well he says I gotta go now. Um, maybe we'll talk about this later on. If you're more interested, give me another call and the scene closes. Next scene opens, and here's this waitress that was serving them coffee, sitting next to a guy who we find out is Herman, her brother. She's yakking 2,000 miles a minute. Herman's not saying anything. She said, Herman, you know, I listened to the craziest conversation in the restaurant today. She said, this guy was talking about religion. He wasn't, no, Herman, he wasn't talking about religion. He was talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ, about Christ's blood, and about being cleansed. i never heard anything like it, Herman. You know what I did, Herman? Right while he was talking, I gave my life to Christ. The scene closes. Next scene is Herman at home. His wife is flitting around him, and Herman's sitting there at the kitchen table not saying anything. Herman, why aren't you talking? Why don't you say something to me? And on and on it all goes. Herman, what's bugging you? So finally Herman says, well, it's something that my sister said. Oh, your sister again. The way goes his wife like crazy. Now he says, just listen. He told me the strangest story about accepting Jesus as her Savior. No, Maggie, I think we'd better look into it. I think we're going to go to church (laughs) Sunday. Oh, Maggie goes out of this world. (laughs) Herman, go to church Sunday. And the scene closes. Next scene opens and here's Maggie in a manicurist shop. She's the manicurist. She's working on a very, very upper crust lady. Three months later and she's telling this lady how they started to go to church and how they came to know the Lord. And this lady says, well, everybody's entitled to their own faith. Maggie says, yeah, that's true, isn't it? She looks at this lady and she says, hey, what's your faith? The lady didn't say anything at all. Scene closed. Next scene was in Tokyo, Japan. Well, this very high-class lady was giving a lecture on self-image. <laughs> anyway, she was dealing with a, uh, she was dealing with a whole bunch of people there, and uh, at the close of the uh, seminar, this original guy that was in the airport, that was witness to came up to her, and he said, "Hey, uh, you know, you're, you're a little different than the last time." He said, "Well, I." I've become a Christian. I've accepted Christ. Well, he says, you know, I had a friend six weeks ago that got started telling me about that, but for some reason he had to run away. And I just never finished the conversation. Well, she says, come on, let me tell you about it as I take you to the airport. Scene closes, and the final scene opens with this man coming back to the airport. And he rings up his original friend, and he says, hey, Sam, it's Bob. Oh, Bob, yeah, yeah, that's right hey, you know, we were talking about Christ and you promised you'd get back to me sometime. Oh, that's right. That's right, I did. Sure. Well, when can we do it? Oh, are you interested? Yeah, sure I'm interested. By the way, uh, I've become one of them. I'm a Christian too. And I walked away from that festival on evangelism with a whole new perspective of the ripple effect. And I pray, God, that that ripple effect goes into effect tonight. All over the city of Grand Rapids, all over West Michigan, and all around the world, as God's Spirit works in a very special way to touch your heart, to open up you to what your identity is and to understand what it is that you really have to give. There isn't a single person in this auditorium tonight that can begin to comprehend how God uses you. A year ago, God called a very, very precious saint home to him from our church. Been on a bed of illness for twenty years. I often used to sit with her and we'd talk about purpose and meaning in life, and she'd say, what? What's the meaning? All I all I am is sick, and I'm in the hospital. I used to say to her, oh, are you in for a surprise? Are you in for a surprise when you see your Savior face to face and you begin to understand how he used your testimony and that of your husband through this illness in just ways that you've never begun to imagine? That's why Paul said, now unto him, who can do exceeding, abundantly, above all, I ask or imagine, how? By the power at work in me. Christian, do you know that two-thirds of all the people that have ever lived live right now in this generation? That God has never privileged anybody in all of human history with giving such a position as He's given to you and me to be conduits of His Spirit flowing out around the world to see a land like India come to know Him or Korea or all of Africa or South America to see Him move upon the churches here in the United States to bring about a revival. Do you pray tonight? It start, starts. It starts here. with people. God finally Their identity straightened out. They know they're no longer on the roller coaster. Praise God, I'm set forever. Jesus lives in me. The Spirit of God is in me and I'm going out from this place to offer the Creator of life, the convictor, the contender, the comforter, the counselor through my attitude and through my actions to let Him flow out of me. In torrent Living water. God, go with each one of you, in you, flowing through you. Change this town, this world. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you tonight. The to close of the consideration of these beautiful, beautiful truths, Paul's magnificent obsession to live within us as we go from this place. May your Spirit now work with these truths, germinating them and bringing them to fullness of life and expression. Grant that each one of us may go from this place with anticipation and with eagerness, with hearts that are bursting with joy. We've seen the lie of the devil. We've been set free. Oh, God, send your Spirit to set each one of us free so that your spirit may flow from us, those torrents of living water. For your sake we pray.